Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. At the heart of every African exploration story is the explorer's own story. We see the world of Africa through the eyes of Livingston and Stanley and Speak. But what happens to this story when we take the explorer out? It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Adrian Wisnicki talks about the British expeditionary literature of the late 1800s. Reading between the lines of Victorian travel accounts, Wisnicki sees the outlines of a bigger story of local peoples and landscapes and ways of life. Wisnicki is an associate professor of English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and faculty fellow at the Center for Digital Research in the Humanities. And for the past 10 years, he served as the director, along with co-director Megan Ward, of Livingston Online, a digital museum and library devoted to the written, visual, and material legacies of British explorer David Livingston. Wisnicki is also the author of Fieldwork of Empire, 1840 to 1900, Intercultural Dynamics in the Production of British Expeditionary Literature. Adrian Wisnicki, thank you so much for talking with me. Uh, Sure, it's absolutely my pleasure to be here. So in the 1800s, Africa had been connected to the world, to the global economy for so long, for thousands of years, and in the 300 preceding years to the Atlantic slave trade. And, And yet, I think people are surprised at how little Europeans and North Americans actually understood about the African interior. I was wondering if you could talk about the state of African exploration in the 19th century and why it was so hard to do. Sure. So, you know, obviously the African continent is large and depending on the region one is thinking of, there were different kinds of factors in place. So for example, in the North, kind of anybody traveling down kind of 
from the north southward would have hit something like the Sahara Desert and so forth. Depending on which kind of southern or eastern or western coast you were coming from, there might be various kinds of factors in place. For example, malaria was a huge factor in sub-Saharan Africa and kind of preventing travel into the interior. And this was especially true in uh, western Africa. So there are just a variety of kind of geographical, cultural, uh, and other kinds of factors that would prevent people from traveling into the interior. So what was the major goal of early explorers? Uh, for example, in the 1840s, you talk about uh, David Livingston, the Scottish physician, Christian missionary, who leaves Europe to explore Southern Africa. What's, what's he trying to do? Sure. So, so there, there's a couple of interesting things to say about that. So first, there was a representation, a popular representation in, in Britain and elsewhere in Europe that the kind of interior of Africa was unknown in quotation marks in various ways. And to a degree, that meant that it hadn't been visited by Europeans and documented by Europeans. Uh, but one of the things that like my book brings out, especially in some of the earlier chapters, is that actually uh, people who, who kind of specialized in this, you know, people associated with the Royal Geographical Society and so on, knew a fair amount about the interior. And a lot of that information came from travelers who are not European. So Arab travelers, African travelers, uh, those people would engage in various trading expeditions, go into the interior, kind of come back out with whatever kind of you know uh, items they were collecting and so forth. And then they would be interviewed or their information would somehow be passed on uh, to European specialists. And then that information would be collated to produce these maps of the interior of Africa. And the maps were not based on you know, firsthand observation by Europeans, but nonetheless had a lot of information in them. So often what a European explorer, so people like David Livingston and after him, Richard Burton and John Hanning speak, and people kind of working in that mode, were doing was going into the interior in order to provide a European-based account. Hmm. Uh, ideally, a first-person, direct observation, European-based account of what the interior was like. But So in other words, to uh, corroborate these reports that other non-Western people had put together. Yeah, corroborate or, as my book would suggest, replace. Yeah. Right? You would have kind of information, you know, already available about the interior. And the idea would be to kind of replace that with new information that was, quote-unquote, more accurate. Hmm. And so Livingston himself when he uh, travels to Africa in the 1840s, is he originally even interested in the exploration part of this, or is it more about uh, setting up missions? You know, I have to say, I'm not that kind of familiar with the very early part of his career, but my impression is that he was initially kind of working as a missionary. And as he spent time in the interior, he became more and more interested in kind of finding out what else there was, right, or documenting that, let's say. Uh, he, he would have surely kind of gotten reports from various people kind of in circulation and trade and so on in the various areas he was. And clearly he had a kind of personal passion for exploration as well. He comes back in the 1850s. He writes this account of his travels, missionary travels and researches in South Africa. And this thing is a blockbuster. It sells 70,000 copies and uh, makes him rich, makes him famous. And you write in your book, it's very, really interesting about all of these different 
theories that people put have put forward over the years about why this book is such a big seller. So could you talk about that? Sure. This is actually a kind of a good a good example of kind of starting to kind of think about what my book is doing that's that's a bit different from how scholars have worked on this previously. So th- there's the kind of undeniable fact that Livingston, after his kind of first extended stay in, in Southern Africa, which is 1841-1856, published this book, Missionary Travels, in, in 1857, and it was a runaway success, and he became this huge kind of uh, figure in British popular culture and exemplary of exploration and so on. And so there's a fair amount of critical discussion going back decades as to what made Livingston so successful. And so the thing, the things to take away there are the focus is on Livingston, the focus is on British culture, popular culture, uh, the publishing industry, and so on. And so those, those are the kind of principal concerns that are taken up in various kinds of uh, works of scholarship. So what my book is trying to do is kind of stop thinking about Livingston in some ways. Right. And Mm -hmm. this is something that kind of evolves through the chapters, but we're starting to kind of think less about Livingston, the individual, and more about the historical context in which he worked and how those historical contexts were represented and re-represented in Livingston's work. So we're we're effectively trying to kind of move the discussion away from explorers like Livingston isn't the only one, but from explorers like Livingston to the kind of context in which they worked. So from the kind of perspective of the book, the kind of questions as to kind of what made Livingston popular are decidedly less interesting to us than the kind of 19, especially in kind of 19th century African cultural context in which explorers like Livingston would have worked. Mm. In fact, you talk about these different things put forward and in the terms you just described, personal terms, uh, Livingston is a pious man. He's honest. He's, he's got this simple style of writing. He's, he's very brave or he crossed the continent. He's, uh, he's a geographical discoverer. And you pull our uh, focus away from that to say, yeah, but l- let's look at the way he is representing Southern Africa. Is that accurate? And that, that's absolutely right. The, w- the, way he, you know, the way he's representing Southern Africa, and also, you know, just to kind of emphasize, it, it's lots of people. It's not just Livingston, right? So the way they're representing Southern Africa, and then point two, or kind of the related point, what was actually happening on the ground, and and a kind of keep and you know I'm I'm not the only one that kind of broadly noticed this, but a lot of 19th century explorers in in regions like Africa worked in close collaboration or a close proximity or close reliance on a variety of people, L- local people who are kind of you know either from specific African communities or kind of more regional travelers or traders, and so this kind of project of exploration, which is often presented as really the biographies of great explorers. And, and there's, you know, there are kind of books that look at 19th century British exploration as a series of biographies. So, so that's, that's one approach. And we're really trying to kind of shift that away to kind of thinking about the different kinds of individuals, cultures, social dynamics that were present on the ground and how those would have impacted what ultimately uh, explorers like Livingston would have written. So one of the kind of as you move away from the personal towards the geographical or the cultural context, you, you, one, of the, one of the examples you give is Livingston's description of Victoria Falls. I was wondering if you could talk about what these falls are and why they're so important as a landscape in missionary travel. So Victoria Falls are one of kind of, I don't know if it's kind of official, but they are one of the great wonders of the world, just, you know, a waterfall of this scale. And it is something that, again, to kind of Europeans, 
uh, would not have been known at this time, although, of course, it was very well known to the local populations that lived in the region. And for somebody that's engaging in you know, what was seen in the 19th century, a major feat of geographical exploration, uh, which is what Livingston did in that he kind of traversed the African continent from the center to the West Coast and then back all the way to the East Coast, he and his African attendants from the ethnic group, the Makololo, that, that was seen as a kind of major feat of geographical exploration. And the falls worked in relation to that as a kind of symbol. Mm. For Victorians achieved this great thing. Here's the major outcome of this. He discovered the falls, right? You know, and, and again, discovered is in quotation marks sure. since, yeah. since Livingston was really just the kind of first European to visit the falls. There's a debate about what Livingston actually represents as a kind of expeditionary figure. And, and you talk about how there's this story of the missionaries who go to Africa. And he's a missionary uh, in the early or the first half of the 19th century. And that their job is to, or their goal is to convert Africans, bring them into the world of so-called civilization and, and Christianity. There's also this period that comes after that, this period of kind of enhanced imperialism, where European societies, really depending on these theories of race science, are saying, uh, no, these Africans are not within the same broad tent of civilization, and it's our job to administer Africa for their own benefit. So anyway, I'm, I'm taking a long time with this question, but Livingston stands at the cusp of those two worlds. I was wondering if you could talk about where you would place him. Yeah, so so that's a good question. And when you work with 19th century uh, exploration materials, as I have for this book, it can be very difficult because the way a lot of 19th century explorers represent people of different cultures, and by different, I mean pretty much anybody that's not European, yeah. can make for really difficult reading in the present day. Right, they express things in ways that are you know can be kind of can range from kind of uncomfortable to to utterly repugnant to us, and partly this has to obviously do kind of with the individual, but it's also reflective of broader ways of thinking within the culture. And one of the things that's happening in the 19th century is is you know there's this kind of shift from seeing non-European, non-Western peoples as equals, and you know I'm kind of painting very broadly, there's a lot of nuance to this, but seeing them as equals to seeing them as people that somehow need to be taken care yeah. of, right? So equals without Christianity versus people who are not equal will never be equal and need to be taken care of until some future date when they're equal, which is kind of, you know, infinitely deferred, let's say. And so that, that you know, that, that kind of thinking in the culture is happening in the 1850s, 1860s, and it really kind of accelerates in the 1870s and 1880s. Uh, and Livingston is really kind of on the kind of earlier end of the spectrum. So as a result, by comparison, some of some later explorers, his writing reads better in some ways when he's, he's discussing certain people. So for example, when he writes Af about Africans, it can be, you know, it not, it's not consistently so, but it can be much more palatable than say when he writes about Arabs, which can yeah. still make for kind of really bad. <laughs> I mean, it's just very painful, ex exceptionally painful Reading. The context of that is that uh, Livingston blames the Swahili coast Arab populations with 
maintaining slavery. Is that correct? Is that where some of his that's, that, vitriol comes from? That's correct. So for Livingston, Arabs often means kind of uh, Arabs kind of distributed across East Africa, kind of centered around Zanzibar and engaged in the kind of regional and kind of wider regional trade, and which includes the slave trade. Yeah. So for him, he's, he's often speaking about very specific kind of Arabs, but for him, those Arabs kind of come, come to exemplify everyone. Yeah. In later chapters, you expand the scope of this examination of exploration to include the East Africa expedition led by John Speak and Richard Burton, which leaves Zanzibar on the coast of East Africa uh, in 1856. I was wondering if you could talk about the goals of that expedition and uh, why it is so important. Sure. So, uh, so that that expedition was was interesting in, in that, un- unlike the Livingston expedition, it was fronted by two people. I mean, Richard Burton was officially the leader, but he had a kind of second in command who was also European and who, you know, as kind of history would show, actually came to upstage Burton yeah. in the kind of work yeah. they did. So that expedition, as did a lot of 19th century expeditions of that sort, this one was sponsored by the Royal Geographical Society, as were a lot of them again, had a variety of goals. Uh, Broadly speaking, it was to produce comprehensive documentation of the interior of Eastern Africa, including the various waterways, waterways and, and lakes, so as to resolve uh, ongoing debates and discussions in European geographical discourse. Uh, to put that in other ways, there are lots of questions about rivers in the interior of Africa and about the different lakes. And in particular, one kind of source of fascination was the source of the Nile. Yeah. So the East Af- African expedition was trying to address a lot of those questions. Uh, where did various waterways run? Uh, how were they connected to the Nile? How were they connected to other major African li- rivers like the Congo River and so forth? So it was trying to gather documentation in that respect, but just also more broadly about the area in general. Uh, what, what was interesting about that expedition, this is something that I take up in the book, is one kind of remnant of when we think of 19th century exploration, especially kind of these heroic figures, is we imagine with them kind of, you know, essentially landing on the coast and plunging into the, sure. in, into the kind of the wild, right? The reality didn't work like that at all. There were longstanding, in some cases, you know, in many cases, kind of several hundred year old, well-established travel and trade routes. And uh, there were all kinds of protocols and all kinds of regimes already established on how these routes worked. And so, quote unquote, explorers like Burton and Speak, who showed up in East Africa, wouldn't actually kind of plunge into the wild as much as plug into these established networks and have to work within their protocols. Yeah, you. Um, I, I found this point really interesting in your book because that expedition among people who study this sort of thing are really known, one, because the, these two guys fell out and had this huge controversy over mm-hmm. um, the lakes that supposedly were the source of the Nile. And then they fought about it back in England, as well as all of the expeditions that were kind of inspired after it to put together the map of the lakes region. So that's how it's normally talked about. And yet your interests in the book are quite different. You talk a lot about how what's not being seen here is the degree to which these two men were relying upon local knowledge, Nyamweze knowledge to create these maps in the first place. Is that, is that correct? 
That that's absolutely right. So it's it's not only kind of depending on local knowledge, but also depending on the local systems. So there was a kind of reality that was structured in place there, right? As as you might imagine for any any kind of non-European context, right? Like long existing uh, realities. And what explorers like Burton and Speak did, one of the key things they were doing was mapping, mm. right? They were, they were traveling and gathering various kinds of cartographical data. And so one of the things that the second chapter of the book really kind of explores in terms of how it functioned and developed was the representation through maps of Eastern Africa and how a kind of reality that existed and had already been mapped through prior maps that drew on local Arab and African knowledge was essentially wiped away and overwritten by the information and data that Burton and Speak have gathered. Hmm. So, so this is what I was talking about. So it's, it's less creating their materials in collaboration, more kind of writing their materials over existing uh, facets of reality. Yeah, you know, I, I was kind of struck by this because in my own project, uh, my, my second book was about uh, Stanley in Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's this way in which when Stanley arrives in on Lake Victoria, and he's talking to uh, African kings such as King Mutesa. Mutesa already knows all this stuff about the outside world. And there's a way in which we're not told how he would know these things. (laughs) Sure, sure. There's a whole kind of story of the outside world that exists from these traders that you're talking about, that they're, they're like ghosts in the story. They're never really kind of developed as as storylines anyway that's not even a question it was just something that was that struck me reading this that i was like huh yeah i've seen i've seen this too yeah no no, i i think this is a great point and and there's kind of two two layers to this so one you know the way you've characterized is absolutely true right like mutessa knew that knowledge from somewhere right and it wasn't from stanley uh and two in the 19th century, there was less interest in kind of documenting those kinds of sources because they weren't yeah. European sources. So now, kind of from the vantage of the 21st century, it's all the more difficult to kind of explore that kind of, you know, discuss that kind of material because we don't know what we're discussing. We get kind of reported conversations. They're not always attributed. We get to various kinds of bits of data that is kind of unsourced, but mm. we know it's not coming from the explorers, you know, the British explorers necessarily. You um, also move beyond just the European and American expeditions to Africa to talk about literary representations of the continent, specifically the work of Joseph Conrad's novella, Heart of Darkness, which uh, probably everybody read in high school, but tells the story of Charles Marlowe, who's narrating essentially a voyage up the Congo River and then confronting this European who's gone native, so to speak an ivory trader named Kurtz. And I was wondering what kind of role this plays in the broader project that you're trying to describe. Sure. So, so that's a good question. So I bring in Heart of Darkness in the book's last chapter, and the book is principally concerned with non-fictional expeditionary literature, uh, British explorers that kind of traveled to Africa and so forth. Uh, and then the last chapter kind of considers how the argument developed in the book as a whole might also be applied to fiction, and it uses Conrad to kind of illustrate that point. So Conrad's book, it's very kind of popular, so a lot of people are very familiar with it, really focuses on these two individuals, Marlowe and Kurtz. The, the scholarship on it is, is vast, so it's kind of kind of Yeah, hard. it but, is vast. But let's just say there's, there's a pronounced <laughs> focus on Marlowe and, and Kurtz, to sure. say the least, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And then the kind of major branch of that scholarship 
grows out of the kind of highly influential essay that uh, Chinua Achebe wrote in, in the late 70s about kind of Conrad and Heart of Darkness. One way to kind of boil down the central question of Achebe's essay is, was Conrad a racist or not, right? And, you know, in his representations and kind of, you know, the various things he wrote and so forth. So that kind of scholarship, including the Achebe scholarship, kind of keeps the focus on the Europeans, right? Yeah, is it is right, it Conrad? Right. Is it Kurtz? Is it Marlowe, et cetera, right? So what I kind of do, and this is really kind of the last move in the book since it's the last chapter, is I say, well, Conrad wrote this book about a particular uh, historical context in late 19th century Eastern Congo in this specific region. What difference does that make, right? How would this book have been different, say, if it was written in Eastern Africa or Southern Africa? And so sure, in this particular region, the Belgians are there, but that's only kind of one of many kind of things that's happening. And there's kind of a longstanding history in that region that kind of far exceeds anything that the Belgians have done in kind of the decade or, or, or two that they've been there by the time Conrad gets there, right? It's actually probably not even a decade. So, so, so that's a kind of good example of kind of how I shift the focus away from kind of key European figures to the local historical, cultural, social, economic, and so forth context. There's a way in which the story that you're talking about echoes this shift in scholarship about Africa and Asia and other places uh, in, in scholarship where you know, explorers go into these places as heroes when they're written about in the 1940s and 1950s. And when you have this kind of shift in the social sciences in the 1960s with Foucault and Said and these guys, sure. then often that next generation, you see these Europeans, but they've become villains, but they're still at the center of the story. <laughs> and what I, what I find interesting about your work is it echoes at one level, I think, the shift towards like, well, can we just bring other features of the story to the fore, usually talked about in terms of people, but in your work, it, it almost feels like there's a certain element of environmental history in it. You're actually paying a lot of attention also to landscapes and to uh, to places. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, sure, sure, absolutely. So, so I think I think you know the characterization you've given is really good, and key facet of that, and especially kind of in the wake of Said, is an endless array of really amazing postcolonial scholarship that kind of emerges over the last couple of decades. As I'm writing the book, I'm conscious of another a number of critical dimensions, right? So I'm very conscious of the British-centered or European-centered historiography that's been written about these British explorers. Uh, I'm very conscious of postcolonial scholarship. I'm very conscious of different aspects of African historiography and cultural studies. There's anthrop anthropological work that's been influential, cartographical work, geographical work. And then I, I also work in, in an area called digital humanities. So, th so there's obviously a lot of that kind of work coming in as well. So even this, though this book is kind of in a lot of ways written like any other kind of book of this sort may be, which is a kind of extended engagement with the colonial archive and, you know, kind of extended analysis of that archive, I am influenced by the fact that I, I do a lot of work in the digital humanities as mm. well, separate from this book. And so one, I feel like post-colonial scholarship has done a lot of work in bringing out all the problems with colonialism, right? None, none of which I would deny. And there's been fascinating work done there. I guess I, I kind of feel like I'm trying to take the next step and think of these various explorers and the documents we have from them as data. And to consider how we can use that data to rethink the 19th century, you know, in these particular contexts that I'm looking at, and also to kind of avoid a narrative of victimization, 
right? Yeah. Like to kind yeah. of assume that the mm-hmm. people living in place on the ground have their own histories and that explorers come into that and then obviously colonialism becomes a project, but that's not the only way to define those contexts and they shouldn't be defined in just those ways. Uh, and so that's one key area where I, the data really becomes interesting because it's data about these regions that is not duplicated in some ways and can tell us interesting things. And there's work that's been done around the colonial dimension, around, around the dimensions of the very kind of oppressive structures that colonialism put into place. And I try to kind of think beyond that as well. You mentioned uh, your work in the digital humanities, and uh, you have for many years been the director of a pretty amazing site, actually, Livingston Online, which I've used many times for primary source documents, amazing scans, contextual essays. I mean, it's just a fantastic site, which you co-direct with uh, Megan Ward at Oregon State. I was wondering if you could talk about how that work has shaped your scholarship, or if it has. Sure, sure. I'm happy to do that. And so first, thank thank you for speaking so kindly about the site. I really appreciate it. So what's been interesting about Living Soundline is it is a long-running running venture. It ran for about five years before I ever became involved, but I'm, I guess I'm kind of approaching 10 years or so of being involved with the project. And there are two aspects of the project that have had a deep influence on this book, especially because the project has developed more or less concurrently with the book. So one, the project takes up an extended, in-depth engagement with archival materials through analysis, but also through enhanced analysis using technologies like spectral imaging. And two, the project is very collaborative. I direct the project and and Megan Ward co-directs the project, but we have a lot of people who have worked with us on it over the years. And people coming from different disciplines, people coming with different questions, people coming with different interests. And so we've worked with a, I mean, we've been really fortunate to work with a very supportive community, but a community that has been also very vigorous in the way they've participated in the project and has not shied away from kind of interrogating the kinds of questions we've asked. And so we've been able to ask- So these are other scholars, in other words, that are- Other scholars, scientists, programmers, archivists. I mean, we have people coming. And, And also, you know, in addition to kind of, multiple disciplines, also multiple uh, stages of their careers. So from very kind of senior scholars or scientists to undergraduate and graduate researchers. And so we've maintained a very open questioning environment. And so it's made for a very robust scholarship, right? Where you have people from very different disciplines questioning or kind of helping you think about the fundamental arguments that you're going to make. And so it's, it's really helped us kind of think about these materials in complex interdisciplinary robust in new ways. Uh, More so because often some of the kind of people from other disciplines that we're working with have never thought about these materials. So they kind of see them with fresh eyes. So for example, some of the scientists I've worked with, uh, you know, they're kind of leading experts in the image processing that they do, but they've never thought about 19th century exploration. (laughs) So the way they see it will be very different from somebody, you know, like me, who's kind of immersed in the critical literature. And so they can provide very interesting insights. And so that has really shaped how I see the primary materials that I'm working with. And in particular, one thing that I've really become aware aware of over time is just how collaboratively written those materials are, how much they depend Mm. on input from all the kinds of interlocutors that these, you know, Livingston, but also other explorers worked with, how much of the data is less kind of produced data as much as gathered data. Mm. Adrian Wisnicki, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And thank you again for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. 
that's it for today. The music was composed by Zabrat. Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website for podcast links and other exploration-related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at Time to Eat the Dogs. That's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.